church family. I'm your interim pastor, Mike Sherrod. I want to welcome any of you who may be visiting with us today or joining us online. Thank you. We continue our series in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's epistle, one of his first written epistles, and we're in chapter 5. We'll look at verses 1 through 4 this morning. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 4. The text is provided for you in the bulletin as is a simple outline of the points that we'll make. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. This is the word of the Lord. Every Sunday, at least since I've been here, you confess together on page four of the bulletin, after your uh, prayer of assurance of the forgiveness of your sins, you confess together, Amen, come Lord Jesus. For what exactly are you asking? You say that every Sunday. So think about the prayer you just made in answer to that question. Think about the longing in your heart for paradise to be restored on this earth. What are you asking Jesus to do? On the strength of texts like this, we have very clear answers to how that prayer will be answered one day. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Now suppose tomorrow morning you go to work and you get one of those forwarded emails, and in those forwarded emails it says, Jesus has already returned, and your eyes light up and you look at the computer again. There's an email circulating that Jesus has already returned. What do you think? Well, if you're highly curious and confused about that, you would join some of the folks in the church at Thessalonica 2,000 years ago because something like that was being circulated in the church. Some sort of misunderstanding, somebody that missed Paul's teaching or they got a stupid email and they forwarded it. There was a misunderstanding that Jesus has already returned. Paul addresses it. Look ahead to the chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians in your Bible. I just want to show you how absolutely certain we are that Paul needed to address this problem. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, that's the event he referred to at the end of chapter 4 where the church is caught up to meet Jesus in the air. He says, We ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. 
So this is a problem, probably not for most of you, but it was in the early church. Paul must address it. And so he's addressing the concern, have I missed the day of the Lord? Is that possible? Have my loved ones who've died prior to Jesus' second coming somehow missed out? Are there second chances to get it right when Jesus comes? The answer to all of those is no. And the question I want to answer, the focus of today's sermon is, can you somehow miss the second coming of Jesus? The answer is no. And here are the four reasons we're going to learn from the text. You can't because it is predicted, it's audible, it's suddenly swift, and it is inescapable. So here we go. You're going to learn more about this thing you pray every Sunday, come Lord Jesus. Let's learn more about that. Number one, the day of the Lord is predicted. Verse one, now as to the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Why doesn't Paul, Paul need to write anything about this? He's already taught them. He's taught them very clearly and in no uncertain terms. We know from the accounting of this church being planted in Acts 17 that when Paul showed up, he opened the scriptures for us, the Old Testament. He opened the scriptures and he showed in the scriptures that the scriptures predicted, promised Messiah would come. He showed those promises to them. And then he said, Jesus Christ of Nazareth fulfilled those promises. And we know from the Bible that Jesus showed up and said what? All those promises about me? Yes, I'm fulfilling them. And Jesus made this unbelievably wonderful promise to you. That on the basis of his flawless obedience to the law of God, he would give you as a gift when you ask for it, absolute perfect righteousness in God's sight. He kept that promise. He also promised that the moment you trust him and believe in him, his cross will remove all of your sin and all of the wrath of God do your sin. If you trust in him, you are absolutely justified, pure, spotless, clean in the sight of God. He kept that promise. Jesus promised that the grave could not hold him. And on the third day, he rose in an indestructible body, which is your certain future, if you trust in him. He kept that promise. Jesus promised to return to his Father's throne, pour out the Spirit, we're celebrating that on Pentecost Sunday, for his work on the earth, and to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the Lord of the nations. He kept that promise. And he promised to return in judgment to bring paradise to earth. He has not yet fulfilled that promise. There's one outstanding promise to be fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. He hasn't returned yet as judge to make everything right, to mete out the justice. Even the saints in heaven right now are pleading, we're told in Revelation before the altar, they're pleading, how long till you avenge our blood? How long, Jesus, till you fix the speaker in the auditorium? Thank you, Jesus. Well, he's in Christ, so it could be said of him. <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. One last promise to fulfill. Paul clearly taught his Thessalonian audience 
there's a judgment coming. Look, as Gentile converts, they wouldn't intuitively have understood that. But he clearly taught it. It is referenced in this text. It's referenced in the Bible from beginning to end. He calls it the day of the Lord. Where does Paul get this language? The Old Testament. It is one of the major motifs of the Old Testament, the day of the Lord. Particularly in the prophets. The day of the Lord marked special visitations of God. Sometimes bitter, God was coming to judge his people Israel. Sometimes sweet, God was visiting his people Israel to pronounce blessing and to deliver them from their enemies. It turns out that if you just looked at the Bible and you reference every time day of the Lord comes up, you'd see that there are multiple fulfillments of the day of the Lord, and they all anticipate a future culminating kind of day of the Lord. And this is how the Apostle Peter at Pentecost interprets the pouring out of the Holy Spirit based on the prophecy of Joel. The fact that the Spirit's come is the day of the Lord, but there's a second component to it. Turns out the day of the Lord comes in two installments. Installment one, Pentecost fulfilled a future installment when Jesus comes again in judgment to vindicate his people, to bring us into paradise on this earth. So the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus, the day of wrath, the day of judgment, it's all the same. You can't miss it, beloved. It is predicted. Secondly, you can't miss it. It's audible. I need to go back into chapter 4 because I skipped over a verse I said I would return to, and that's verse 16 of chapter 4. I'm going to make good on this promise, and I want to reference uh, chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul wrote this. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. This is the threefold witness to the appearing of Jesus Christ. The signaling audibly of the appearing of Jesus Christ. Cannot miss it. Let's unpack these. The cry of command. Why do people shout? They shout to get people's attention. Uh, to announce their presence. Honey, I'm home. To warn. Watch out. Or to summons. Come here. You may recall from Jesus' teaching, and he taught so much about his second coming and judgment. The beginning of Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, the bridegroom unexpectedly appears at midnight. That's not usually when bridegrooms appear. It's unexpected and sudden. And he appears with a shout. This is no doubt what Paul is referencing. So we have the cry of command. Secondly, the voice of the archangel. Angels are messengers who, among other things, announce important matters from heaven. Now, in human history, kings don't march out to their balconies and say, everybody quiet down, listen to me, I've got news for you. No. Somebody announces their presence. When Judge Moore comes into the courtroom, he does not say, all rise, everybody listen to me. There's somebody standing on Judge Moore's behalf who says, rise, 
Sit and be quiet. Even, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. The, the President doesn't announce himself. They are announced. Jesus will be announced by the angels. And then the third audible signal, Jesus is coming. The day of the Lord, the second coming. The trumpet of God. This is just so rich and juicy. Go back into the Old Testament and see how trumpets are used. Okay? And what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to show you how trumpets are used in the Old Testament and show you how it was a pristine foreshadow of exactly the meaning of the trumpet when Jesus comes again. So, for example, at Mount Sinai, we're told that the, that the voice of God sounded like a trumpet. Trumpets were used in ancient Israel to, uh, to assemble a public gathering. So, for example, at, at, at 925, we could have sent somebody out those doors and go, and said, come on in for the assembly. Trumpets were used to commence a battle. Trumpets were used at the end of a battle. Trumpets were used to uh, claim kingship, and trumpets were used to announce a time of worship. Trumpets play a very significant role, summonings the people of God for significant events. Now, when Jesus comes again, the trumpet's going to sound. It's the last trumpet. So that every trumpet blare in the history of God's people is ultimately looking for that one last trumpet. And what will happen when that trumpet blares? We will hear the voice of Jesus. We will assemble to Jesus. He will take his rightful claim as king and lord of the whole earth. He will come to end strife on this earth by judging his enemies. He will come to commence an ongoing worship of him as king of kings, lord of lords, face to face with his people. Paul, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, makes this so clear when he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. When you hear that heavenly trumpet, you can say, my body's going to be transformed. I'm going to finally see my Savior. I'm going to be reunited with my loved ones who have perished. It's audible. The second coming, it is audible. Voice of the archangel, cry of command, the trumpet of God. Can't miss it. Thirdly, it's swiftly sudden. Paul is very familiar with Jesus' teaching, particularly in what we call the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, spills over to Matthew 25, where Jesus is warning his disciples in no uncertain terms, you must be ready you must be alert. You cannot afford to be sleepy, indifferent to my second coming. And he uses two provocative image about the suddenness of his coming. One will be like birth pangs upon a woman. I'd say maybe a good number of you can relate to that. I can't quite relate to that. And secondly, it will be like a thief in the night. Both have to do with suddenness. Thieves 
plot to steal from you when? Under the cover of darkness, when you're sleeping, when you're unaware. Most thieves don't send you a text saying, by the way, uh, 3.30 tonight, I'm coming to break into your house. They just don't do that. It is sudden. And in contrast, Paul is saying, you, verse 2, you yourselves are fully aware that the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Producing an awareness and expectation. Now, I'm going to talk more about this next week because Paul will go on in verses 4, the next six verses. He's going to really tease out for you what that looks like in practice. So hold your horses for wanting to know more about that. You should want to know more about that. Paul has more to tell us. I'll get to that next week. But for now, notice his contrast. Verse 2, you are not unaware. But, verse 3, while people are saying, there's peace and safety. Sudden destruction will come. What's he warning against, beloved? A sense of false security produced by good things. I mean, it's a good thing to live in a culture where you have peace and safety. These are unequivocally gifts from our wonderful, gracious, good, sovereign, heavenly Father. But they can lull people to sleep. They can create a sense of complacency. And God does never, doesn't give us these gifts ever at the expense of spiritual urgency. In fact, beloved, if, if there's anything good, anything peaceful, anything pleasant, anything safe about your life, maybe this afternoon you'll sit out on your deck and listen to the birds and enjoy the trees and enjoy company, enjoy good food, whatever it is, that is ultimately never an end in itself, but a pointer to the pleasure of knowing Jesus. Every good thing points to the pleasure of knowing Jesus. And do you know how God describes his presence in Psalm 16? In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And in his right hand, pleasures forever. That is the ultimate thing for which we ought to long. And God is saying, people can become oblivious in their prosperity. Do you remember 9-11? Some of you do. What happened in the churches? I don't know if it happened at Trinity. I wasn't here. But the churches swelled in numbers. Remember this? All these people started flocking back to church. Why? Fear, confusion, concern. They sort of instinctively went back to the thing that feels most stable, God. And bless the Lord, we have not had more attacks since 9-11. And what happened to those swelled number in the churches? They eventually atrophied back to their pre-9-11 numbers. Which tells me this. The threat of final judgment, the threat of the end of the world, is not the primary reason to flee to Christ. Because if your primary reason is a sense of danger then when you don't sense danger, you may just go back to living a complacent, self-willed existence. 
existence. What is the primary reason to flee to Christ? He deserves your devotion. He's worthy of your life. That's the best reason. He's God. He is the rightful owner of all things. So we don't go to God to save our skins. We go to Jesus because he's so lovely. And that's what will make paradise paradise. Seeing the face of God in Jesus Christ. Last reason you can't miss. You can just delete that stupid email when it comes that somehow Jesus has already returned. It is inescapable. Destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. And to be sure, your Bible tells you folks will want to escape. Revelation says, that judgment will be so terrifying, people will beg that boulders fall on them. The Bible takes this much more seriously than I do most of the time. So this tells you that there's at least two kinds of people who will be caught unawares. I'll just, from my own terminology, I will call them the oblivious and the indifferent. Some folks we know are oblivious to the coming judgment. They don't believe in God, so of course they wouldn't believe in a judgment. They might believe in God, and, but they don't believe in a judgment. We had a book written, what, 10 years ago by Rob Bell, Love Wins. He just did away with the biblical doctrine of judgment, just did away with it. It's a pretty sad read, a tragic read. So you know people, I know people who are oblivious. What should we do? Befriend them. Earn the right to be heard. Invite them into our home such that we get to the place where they don't think we're idiots and we begin to broach the subject of Jesus. The reasonableness of the final judgment. Most people believe in justice even though they don't believe in God. They believe in justice. That is a pointer to the fact that yes, there is an ultimate day when everything will be justly handled by God or he wouldn't be good. So beloved, we long for the day when hundreds of folks are coming to Trinity to hear about Jesus because you're befriending them. You're meeting with them. You're talking with them. You're earning their trust. You're longing to impart your faith to them. Ultimately, not so they're saved by judgment. Ultimately, why? Because Jesus Christ is worthy of their worship and devotion. That's the ultimate reason. When I run in my neighborhood and I pray, Lord, give me opportunities with my neighbors, what does it look like when I'm commuting back and forth? Lord, what does it look like to bring the gospel to my neighbors? I'm aware that the number one reason isn't that they're saved from judgment. It's that they owe Jesus everything. That's the, that's the number one reason. So the oblivious, let's befriend them, let's love them, let's show them how beautiful God is. And then the indifferent. And these are people who, 
in some sense realize there might be a judgment, but they basically live a bargain. God, I'll leave you alone if you leave me alone. Now, you may be living that way subtly, but stop and think about that. I'll leave you alone if you leave me alone. And again, isn't there something attractive about that? Because since the fall, our hearts hate the idea of judgment. We hate it. We suppress it. We don't like to deal with that fact. But to say to the most beautiful person in the world, leave me alone, that is the epitome of insanity. God is the most desirable, most beautiful, most wonderful person in the universe. Who would think, leave me alone? But you and I live that way too. See, to the degree you manage your finances, but not with a rigorous biblical ethic over it, you said, God, leave, I love you, I'll serve you, I'll go to church, but you don't have lordship over my finances. To the degree you do relationship or you do sexuality or how you manage your time to the degree it's about your, ultimately your autonomous decision how you do that, you're saying, I love you, but leave that alone. We all struggle with this, <laughs> right? We all do. And we need each other in this fight because it's ultimately what? It's ultimately not believing how good, how lovely Jesus is and his law is. You think you can do finances better than Jesus? What's wrong with you? <laughs> right? We're out of our minds. This is why we confess our sins every Sunday and we receive cleansing. This is why we so much need God's precious word. All right, I'll close with this. Just a little observation about the text. This is called the day of the Lord. In other words, it's the Lord's day. It's Jesus Christ's day. It is payday for Jesus. Because a promise was made from his father, recorded in Psalm 2, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And apparently the Father was asked by the Son for the nations. That's how our call of worship began this morning. The nations will appear before Jesus. Every tribe and tongue, every color, every type of person. And when Jesus comes again, he gets them. He gets his inheritance fully in person. See, the day of the Lord is the day Jesus from all eternity has desired. It's the day Jesus, when he stepped into earth's history and kept the law of God through great suffering, and the day Jesus Christ gave himself up to the horror of the cross to purchase that people to secure them for his presence, to cleanse them, to justify them. It is the reason Jesus Christ ascended from the grave, sat down, and he is ever praying for that day. <laughs> you know, 
Jesus is saying, come quickly. Because he wants you in his presence forever. That's the end of verse 3. The greater that reality is to your heart, the more fervently, the more thoughtfully, the more generously, the more lovingly you will plead, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I, I want to see that face. I want to know that love. I want to gaze on that beauty. I want to bask in that justice. I want that mercy to completely transform me. Okay, Trinity? With me all together. Amen? Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Okay, now you know what we're going to do. Ready? That was on me, not on you. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that will be our prayer, Casey. That will be our prayer. Actually, no, I'll give you time. I'm, I'm going to pray from uh, Second Peter. So let's pray. Give our attention to this. Since all these things are thus to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are awaiting the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. 